you know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm R. Purcell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker. And my first feature film, The Alternate, is playing online at the Studio City International Film Festival this weekend. I'm Liz Manish. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features and currently in development on about five more. I'm also a distribution consultant who does sales, and I used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative. This week, we welcome filmmaker Sujata Day on the show to talk about her new film, Definition Please, which has played festivals around the world. After we talk with Sujata, we also chat about a news article that our producer Eric found for us from The Hollywood Reporter about AMC's interim CEO's business model. And we also answer a listener question. But most importantly, Ulrich, I, I feel like you have something you want to talk about. What, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing great. I got back from Italy like yesterday afternoon and I didn't sleep for like 38 hours because of the way I had to get from Ravenna to Bologna to Munich and back home. And yeah, it was crazy. And I couldn't sleep on the flight because I was packed with two other people and it, all I did was watch movies. But the most exciting thing I have to say is we went to the Ravenna Nightmare Film Festival and the alternate one. First place, the gold ring, which I mean, I'm going to show you, Liz, because you can see no one else gets to see. But it's this little gold ring that was made by a gold craftsman in Ravenna. And it it says the dark side of movies. And it has the year and the name of the festival on the edges on the side. So it's really, really cool. It was such a shock. Because so I, I got there a day before my screening and it was the last two days of the festival. But I got to watch like six movies, which was like incredible to see so many movies at a film festival. And this one from hun- Hungary called Postmortem was really great. It was mm. just a super amazing, well done ghost story set in World War One about a postmortem photographer who takes pictures of dead people, you know, for their families during the war times. And then it like goes completely nuts from there. And it's like a ghost story about around this subject. Oh. And the special effects were amazing. The visual effects were amazing. The sets and the locale, it was incredible. And I was like, yeah, this is going to win. I was like, this is this will win first place for sure. And since I don't speak any Italian or anything, <laughs> they like listed the like during the award ceremony, they like were like, blah, 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 postmortem. And I was like, oh, it won. That's what I thought. And but it was like the honorable mention or like, you know, whatever award. And then they announced the short film winner. And then at the end, they said the alternate. And I was like, whoa. (laughs) And that was like me. And they're like, yeah, come on down. And I came on down and it was great. And yeah, I took a lot of pictures, met a lot of really awesome people. Um, It was a blast. It was really fun. Did you have a speech? Like, did you prepare a speech or what did you say? Oh, I just, it kept it, you know, our speeches were really brief because they didn't have a translator there. You know, <laughs> they did for, they, they did, they did have a translator for like, they didn't do Q and A's. They just did like little interviews before the movie with the filmmakers. So they would like bring the filmmaker out. They would ask some questions and talk about it before. And then they would play the movie. So for that, they had a translator, but there was the, the woman who translates wasn't up at front during that. So I didn't really feel like I wanted to give a huge speech. So I just like said, thank you so much. It was a complete honor to, you know, play here and, you know, along with so many other amazing films. And, you know, I was just honored just to be here just playing, but to win is like completely amazing. So something like that. I can't even remember. I was just so nervous and excited, but it's on, it's on the internet. Someone took a video of it and then posted it on their uh, page with like a bunch of Italian words around it. And 
So it was pretty cool. <laughs> we have to find that video and we have to share it. Yeah. No, it was a trip. It was cool. Like, you know, I guess that there's a lot of interest in that film festival. It's like mm. the biggest genre film festival in Italy, I think, or one of the biggest. Oh, cool. So they were like really very excited for us to be there. It's like a small festival with like a big following. So like this theater wasn't huge. It wasn't like at a movie theater or anything. It was at like a, a little community center. But yeah, there was uh, lots of like, you know, when, when I looked on Instagram afterwards, there was like an article in one of the Italian horror blogs and it like had the movie there and like, you know, winner, whatever. And it's, you know, it was really cool. I was like, oh my God. And it like got posted like right after the announcement. It was, it was pretty much, it was a trip. Mm-hmm. Anyways. Yeah. So I'm doing fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> on the top of the world. How are you doing, Liz? I have like nothing of note. I was like really excited to hear your story. And then the back of my mind, I was like, oh, God, you have nothing to talk about. Think of something to talk about. I don't know. I have nothing to talk. Um, uh, no, not, z- nothing. <laughs> nothing. Say you. T- what did you do this weekend? What did we do this? week? Oh, um, I-, I met with my editor and we set a look for color and we're just ah. in production in the short. So we're doing that and making progress on the films. But like looking forward to having a finished film to go through what you're going through right now. So what's the process? Is it like, are you on edit three or four? Or do you feel like you've kind of locked in the edit with the footage that you have? Or like, what is what is the stage in post-production that you're at? Well, because we didn't finish all of principle, right? Like there, we basically went left day two knowing we'd have to do a pickup shoot. So basically we cut something together. It actually feels like almost a complete film, except for a penis that has to fall off, hasn't fallen off yet, because that's, <laughs> we have to shoot that. So we're, we're getting it in the best shape possible. And then we're planning, we create little inner titles where we know what we want to pick up. And basically, we're in the process of trying to figure out what we want to pick up. But what has been really cool about this process, not as cool as winning at Ravenna, is designing post-production in an innovative way. So I had a spotting session not just with my composer. I had a spotting session with both my composer and my post-sound supervisor at the same time. So it was like fantastic to be like, I want it to sound like this. And then the sound designer would be like, okay, composer, we need to make sure we avoid each other's frequencies so we don't overlap and we let each other's work stand out. It was like this amazing collaboration that I've never had because I've always had separate spotting sessions. And then I'm the... go between and I know nothing about sound. So like this makes a lot of sense. And then we're also doing color before visual effects and color before the film is locked so everyone can watch or at least have a sense of what the look for the film is before it's too late. Huh. I've never done that either. I've never done I've never done a spotting session, you know, which I as I normally just do temp sound and temp music myself. So can you tell us like what a spotting session is and how it works? Yeah. Well, you just watch the cut in and I told my editor not to put any temp work in because actually the post sound team doesn't want the director to fall in love with the temp sounds. So it was the request of the post sound team to be like, don't use any temp material. And all of my temp music I sent, like we didn't have it in the cut, but I sent examples to the composer. So she knows kind of what I'm mm-hmm. thinking of in my head. But the spotting session was just look scrubbing through the timeline and telling the composer and the sound post sound team what I'm looking for in chronology and then asking them what their plan was. And then what's great is that they both really care. And there's all these like, there's like a depth to what they're doing. So like the sounds in relation to the seance or the witchcraft 
is going to be in direct relation to what that goddess is associated with, which is keys and animals and garlic. Mm. And so it's like we're using sounds that are related to the substance and the thematic material. It's just very cool. I'm having a good time. But again, I know you've been very kind to ask these questions about this process, but it's not like thrilling. It's just like general post-production. No, it's interesting because I've never done it that way. I always, you know, I send references to the the people beforehand, you know, to the sound designer and to the, you know, the composer. And then I also put it into the movie as I'm editing, or at least that's what I did for the, actually, I think that's what I've done for everything recently is always just do it that way. But I, I think there's something to be said about not doing that because then you're sort of locking them into a certain vision and you're not letting them be as free. And I think like... Freedom for the artists is really important, letting them sort of see where they want to go of things and not like sort of locking them into one sort of idea is good. And I think when you're working with a low budget and with people who are don't have as much time as they normally would to work on something, I think it definitely limits their creativity because they're going to already go with what is already already there to to jump off of, you know. And I also like there's a level of respect that I think sound can be given. If you have more FaceTime and more integration between departments, I think very easily you could be like, okay, we'll create, you know, some foot traffic outside the window and, you know, they're in a suburb. So have some kids playing outside or whatever it is. But my post sound team was like, no, where are they? Where are they? What's going on? What time of day? What kind of, what's the energy of this? Like they got to ask whatever questions they wanted to. Mm -hmm. And then for my composer, all of these questions that I never thought of came up where I was like, oh, I really want to use this punk song as the credit sequence. But if you wanted to create something, I don't want you to feel insulted that I'm just going to license a song and slap it on there. So you let me know if you want to create something specifically for the credits or if you think I should license something. I think people just kind of assume they'll go along with whatever, but you forget that they're in charge of like, a whole aspect of the film and very often they just get sequestered into like button pushing. And so I just want to avoid the button pushing. Yeah. They actually have to be free to create. Yeah. Just like you're saying. So that's fun. And then we're just planning our pickup shoot right now. Nice. Enough talking about the short. I think we have something way more important to talk about. What's that, Ulrich? Happy birthday to Tekken Zahan and Eric Parnell from Ben, Oregon. Thank you guys so much for supporting the Patreon page. And Eric would like everyone to know that if you want to shoot a movie, you should just come to Bend because that is a great place to make films. But yeah, we really appreciate the support of the Patreon page. And we really hope that you enjoy your birthday surprise today on this wonderful day of a Monday. And yeah, thank you guys for supporting the Patreon. And another thing I want to say is Tekken's from the UK, another UK person. I feel like we're like superstars in the UK. We don't even know. That's what I think it must be, right? We're like big in Japan. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Just a reminder that our birthday messages are because we don't want to just say thank you. We want to turn it into a celebration. So happy birthday to anyone who supports us on our Patreon page. If you want to have an an extra birthday like (laughs) Tekken and Eric, you can go ahead to www.patreon.com slash MMIH podcast and support the show any way you'd like to. From one little dollar all the way up to however many dollars you have a month would be amazing. Thank you so much for the love. And also check out the International Screenwriters Association, the ISA, our best buds. They're an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through a number of programs that they offer, including publishing your logline to a network of industry professionals, consultation courses, contests, 
and their top 25 writers list featuring some of the best writers. Go to networkisa.org, sign up for free today. Before November 30th, if you would like the yearly membership, you can get it for $20 off, a minor $80 versus their normal total, which is $100 by using the promo code MMIH2021. And that's for new ISA Connect members only. But without any more further delay, here's our chat with Sajada Day. Welcome, Sujata. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Just start with giving us the elevator pitch for a definition, please. Definition, please, is a story about a young girl who wins the National Spelling Bee, and now she's a young adult, and she hasn't lived up to her potential, and she still lives at home, and she's tutoring kids in her hometown, and she's trying to figure out her life. How many days did you shoot? Like 12. What was the rough budget, if you can say? Not can't can't say that one. Can't say that one. Can you give, give us, us a rate? ballpark? Give us. Yeah, something. We'll say like SAG, SAG low budget. SAG. OK. OK, so not not ultra low, but SAG low budget. Okay. SAG low budget. Yeah. There you go. How did you come up with the idea? Well, everything that I come up with is based on like a smidgen of my real life. So I had won my fourth grade class spelling bee and I went on to regionals and I lost in the first round and obviously was never a national spelling bee winner, but that loss always stayed with me. And in 2015, I was in a UCB sketch writing class and wrote a four page sketch called where are they now spelling bee winners? (laughs) And so obviously the last winner was doing nothing and just a bum. So I took that idea and that character and I developed it into the feature film version of Definition, Please. Wait, wait, quick follow up. What can I ask the the word that you lost on? I'm just curious. Yes, it was radish and I spelled it with two D's instead of one. Oh, that's tough. Mm. And everyone, if I've talked to a lot of people, and they always remember the word that they lost on. Yeah, I would definitely. Yeah, I would for sure. I remember. Yeah, never mind. Anyways, <laughs> I, lo- I lost a wrestling competition in high school that haunted me for a long time. So I always remember the move I lost to. Anyways, how long did you spend working on the film from being brought on or coming up with the idea to it being released? Well, I started writing the feature film in late to mid 2017. And then I shot it summer of 2019 and then covid curtailed the release and so we did the virtual film festival circuit and now we did just secure distribution so it will be coming out very soon congratulations thank you compared to all the other projects you've been a part of how difficult was this one it wasn't difficult until trying to find distribution oh sorry that's what i do for a living so i'm like oh i want to just talk about that but no, no, we have to start from the beginning, right? <laughs> maybe, maybe we don't. Well, I'm, I'm like just blown away by that last statement. It's yeah. like, okay, so raising the money wasn't difficult. That was a, a smooth process for you. So what happened is I had had the script. So 2017, 2018, went through a couple of drafts. And then at the end of 2018, I was like, oh, this is a shooting draft. And early 2019, went to Sundance. This was been to Sundance multiple times. This time I was there with HBO. And my friend, Justin Chan, his film, Ms. Purple, was playing there. And I've already been to the Gook premiere a few years back. And I'm super inspired by him. And I was like, oh, he's made two movies in the time that I should have been making movies as well. 
And so I was kind of beating myself up for that. And then I just decided then and there, I was like, oh, I'm going to shoot Definition Please this summer. And serendipitously got an email a couple hours later from my reps telling me that a show that I had sold to a studio was being returned back to me. The rights were being returned along with a huge check. So I was the first investor into my film. And so raising the money, although it's tough, it was a lot easier with investors who are friends, friends of friends, family members, with investors who knew that I also had put a big chunk of change into the movie. Wow. I'm like, there's 4,000 questions that I'm circulating on. I do want to go back and because I think a cursory search of you is that you do like 5 million amazing things. And I just want to figure out the strat, not necessarily the strategy, but the timeline of that. So you did you start performing and then go into writing, directing, or was the plan always to be a writer director? Can you talk a little bit about the prioritization of those things? Yeah. So I definitely was a performer as a kid. So I was a dancer. I was a singer. I was doing musical theater in middle school and high school, doing plays and in dance recitals, playing the piano, all of that. But I was also a writer. So I read a lot of books. I wrote a lot. I was good in my English classes, wrote a couple articles, got published, but then didn't start screenwriting until college when I took a semester of playwriting and I took a semester of screenwriting. And that's where I learned the basics. And from that point forward, I took my writing way more seriously in terms of for the screen. And it went hand in hand with my performing. And when I started doing Awkward Black Girl with Issa Rae, that just really solidified everything where she was writing for herself. She was playing the lead role. She was putting the budget of Awkward Black Girl on her credit cards and maxing out those credit cards. So that just felt like something I was going to do as well, because I saw it happening right next to me. Yeah. What an amazing thing to like be inspired by and to like take into your own work, you know, to be a part of it as it's happening. It must have been incredible. Another follow-up question on that. You know, besides the inspiration to just do it yourself, what other lessons did you learn from Awkward Black Girl that you took into your own filmmaking? A lot of lessons. Listen to your voice. Be aware that your story is unique and that people want to hear that story, even though executives or greenlighters are passing on it or rejecting the idea. And then since they have no idea what they're talking about, you just have to go out and do it yourself and prove it to them that there is an audience out there for your work and that your story is actually important and that there's people who haven't seen themselves on screen before. Going back to representation, I mean, you talked a little bit about selling a show. Can you break down the way you were represented in the industry? I mean, did first come talent and then came lit or what exactly started first? And then how do those reps interact with each other for you and your career and your priorities? Certainly it was talent first. So I started booking national commercials pretty early on. And I recognized that in the commercial world, like they are looking for tons of different faces. So that was, that was very interesting to learn that I was like a successful commercial actress. And then going into the theatrical world, which is TV and film, it felt a lot harder. It felt like they were stereotyping people who look like me. I was constantly going in for auditions where 
I had to do an accent where I had to wear a certain type of clothing where the storylines were all very similar to one another. I was looking at that and be like, I don't, these aren't the kind of roles that me and my people that I audition with all the time, these aren't the kind of roles that we want to play. That also went hand in hand with me booking Awkward Black Girl and me playing a role in Awkward Black Girl that was not a stereotype, that was very close to who I was in real life, maybe an exaggerated version of myself. That really opened my eyes to what could happen in terms of representation for people who look like me. And so that really pushed me to write the roles that I wanted to see, write the roles that I wanted to play. And then your sorry, it's funny because we're talking about representation in terms of like representing different cultures, different diversity values. But then also I'm thinking like WME, like and your managers and your agents. And how does that come into play with regard to selling a show, but also performing, but also being a woman of like 15 million talents? So I definitely misunderstood. (laughs) That's cool. I can talk about my reps too. That's awesome. So everything that I write is for brown girls slash brown women. So that's my thing. That's my, I guess, niche. That's what I write. That's what I connect to. That's what gets me up in the morning. And I do tend to stay in the comedy realm. But there are a couple instances where like I have a horror thriller pilot, but it it is also stars a brown woman. So I think I'm not genre specific, but I'm like brown woman specific (laughs) in terms of the work that I want to put out and the work that I want to represent. So yes, in terms of representation, I was introduced to WME earlier this year through a friend, one of the producers on Definition Please actually introduced me to them. And it was a great meeting and they understood who I was and what I wanted to do. And they're not trying to put me into a box that they feel I could fit in. It's, it's like I'm making my own box and their connections and people that they know allow me to expand the box that I have made for myself. And are they repping like the film specifically or you and the movie kind of together? Me and the movie are together. I mean, I'm the writer, producer, director, star of it. So it's it's all encompassing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're repping me kind of across the board in acting, directing, writing, all of it. So what what kind of happened when they joined up? Was that kind of what led to your distribution that you just secured, like getting them on board? Or like, how, how was it to partner with them when you, you know, when they signed on to rep you, basically? I will say that... The distribution deal was from my hard work. So I, through the virtual film festival circuit, we did not have a publicist. I was a publicist and I secured reviews and I secured interviews and they all turned out to be pretty positive. And then the publicity kind of took on a life of its own and people were contacting me And I'm not sure if it was because during the pandemic, there weren't a lot of movies that were being released. So journalists were more apt to be like, oh, here's a movie. I'll I'll take a look at it. I'll I'll review it. Why not? I got time. You know, there's no Avengers coming out right now. So (laughs) might as well do this. I don't know. I don't know what the timing of the situation was, but we kept getting really good press and 
So we were reaching out to different distributors and this one that we said yes to, they reached out to us. So I do believe it was part of, you know, we had a big in-person premiere a month and a half ago and that got a lot of eyes on it and that got a lot of interest. So I think, and, and I threw the premiere, you know, it was through LA Asian Pacific Film Festival, but me and my producers put up the money for the party and we just, you know, made sure that it was a good time and it looked fun. And it was really fun to actually watch the film. It was almost like a cast and crew screening because we hadn't been able to get together to watch the film because of COVID. Right. So it was really fun to be in a legit theater watching the film on the big screen with the people who made the film and just fans and friends and family members. It sounds like you've invested a lot into this project and into your career, right? I mean, and that's how it's done. That's how Ulrich and I work as well. We work, though I think our budgets may be a little bit different than yours. I think we put a lot of skin in the game. And anyway, that's what you have to do to get projects off the ground. So this is certainly not a criticism. This is only a support of that. Are you doing so with the expectation of any sort of financial return? Or have you kind of acknowledged the state of the marketplace and you're doing it for your career? Or like, can you talk a little bit about the decision to put your own money in? For me, personally, it's not about making a profit. But I will say, taking it back to Cowboy and Indian, my short film, I put $5,500 into that film. And I ended up making over $100,000 on that short film. So that's, I was pleasantly surprised by that. <laughs> and, and I certainly... Don't expect that to happen with definition, please. But some kind of monetary reward would be great in terms of breaking even. But I do believe the greatest thing that will come out of definition, please coming out very soon will be the doors that it will open for the cast and crew of the film. And possibly maybe not making money back on this film, but then making money on the, on the next one. Okay. How did you make $100,000 on your short film? That I, we have to know, because I think everyone listening's heads just fell off when you said that. So <laughs> yeah, can you talk yeah. about the, like how that came about? <laughs> sure, sure. So first of all, let me take it back to how I even had $5,500 to put into the film. Right after I graduated college, I was an engineering major. I worked for a company called Accenture. And they're a global business consulting firm, a huge company. I was getting paid a lot of money to work there for the year. I was a terrible employee. So basically, I got laid off after a year. And that was fine. It was like eight months later that I started booking commercials. So, And I had already been prepping for, you know, got an agent started acting classes, all of that stuff. Cut to 2015, I'm doing my taxes and I'm like, oh, what are these random stocks? Let me like call and check this out. So I called them and they're like, oh, Accenture gifted these to you. And I was like, what? <laughs> and so I was like, how much are they worth? And they were like $5,500. And I was like... <laughs> Give me that. Give me that check. And they were like, well, we don't recommend you cashing. I was like, write me the check. <laughs> so it was basically money that I didn't know I had. So I took that money and I was like, you know what? I'm going to write, produce, direct and star in my short film. And the best part about it is, is that I could make all the mistakes that I wanted to because it was money that I didn't know I had and I wasn't answering to anyone else. And so 
I went balls to the wall with Cowboy and Indian. And I just, you know, did it. I wrote the script, shot it in a day. I was like, if it comes out terrible, it comes out terrible. That's fine. And then it came out and I was like, it's not bad. And then I did the virtual, not the virtual, but I did the actual film festival circuit in 2016 with Cowboy and Indian. And also noting that we didn't get into any of the major film festivals. We didn't get into Sundance, Tribeca, TIFF, South by any of those. We did the Asian American film festival circuit. We did the Indian American film festival circuit. So after that, this was like 2017, I got approached by an executive asking if there was a bigger story for the short. And I said, no, (laughs) I said, I did a short film. It's a one-off it's whatever. And then she was like, oh, I would also like to note that this executive was an Indian American woman. And she said, come in and let's let's just have a chat about it. And I was like, "Okay." so I went in. It was like an hour and a half. We like beat out like a series for for Cowboy and Indian. And she was like, all right, go home and write it out and like bring it back. And I was like, "Ah, all right. So then I did that. And then they ended up buying the series to develop. So I developed it with them. So that's when I started making a little bit of money and I was like, oh, this is weird and cool. I didn't I don't know anyone who has made (laughs) one one short and like made some money off of it. Dope. That company was a smaller part of a bigger studio and it got shut down two years later. And that's where I got the money back from. Yeah, the studio. And then I resold the show to a bigger studio while I was shooting Definition Please. So I resold the show summer of 2019 and it was fully developed already. Like we had already fully developed it. We were ready to take it out at the other company. And so this one, the next company was like, oh, it's ready to go. Great. That's where I started making even more money. (laughs) And I was like, this is dope. I love that like TV is funding my indie film career. That's fun. Wow, that's amazing. So it's not that you actually like had the the movie didn't get like, you know, bought by HBO and put on like their service or anything. It's more like you just use the IP to create a show that you've like sold twice, basically. Exactly. Which is amazing. Exactly. And I think wow. I will say that if it had been picked up by like an HBO Max or something, I think it would have hurt the chances of it being able to be used as IP for something else, because then that streamer or that network would have owned it. And is the short out public for people to see right now? It's there. It's out on Vimeo. Wow. It's eight minutes long. Search Cowboy and Indian Sujata. It is there for everyone's consumption. Amazing. Is there a piece of the puzzle that we aren't hearing about? I mean, I know you have to summarize in a very succinct way. We're on a podcast. You're, you know, you're answering short form. But I mean, you've done like fellowships and labs and you've done all these amazing programs. Like, Is that part of you think the reason why people are reaching out to you or is it just the content? And I want I'm hoping that the answer is it's just the content and it's not this crazy fellowship world that we all have to buy into. But maybe you can just answer. (laughs) I think it's the content, but I think it's also relationships. So I am like always reaching out to people, not in an annoying way. I'm always reaching out to people when I have something to offer them that is for real. And I do believe like these relationships that I've had, just like 
For example, the Indian American woman executive that reached out to me was friends with RAD that worked on Awkward Black Girl. So I do believe it's about relationships, meeting luck and timing. And do you have the right project? Do you have the right voice? It's a bunch of different things that have to come together at the same time. It's like basically the reason why when I was a freelancer, I would say yes to every single job because it's like, you never know who you're going to meet on that job and you know who you're going to connect to or what collaborator you're going to connect with or whatever. You know, it's, it's just being out in the world helps in a lot of ways. Well, part of the reason why I brought that up is because last week, Ulrich and I got into a little bit of a debate. Uh, I was just re-listening to it, so I'll try to to summarize it. But <laughs> I I worked at Sundance and I've seen behind the glass how careers can be buoyed through something like an artist support organization. However, I think there are a lot of amazing filmmakers who are out there in the world hustling and getting projects off the ground independently. And my argument to Ulrich is that the independent filmmakers who are truly independent, not working within the system, are going to have a really hard time transitioning to studio content, really getting paid for the work, really getting compensated. I won't belabor the point, but maybe you have something to say to that if, if you wanted to weigh in. I truly believe that succeeding in Hollywood is 50% talent and 50% business acumen. So if you have this amazing feature film that you've made and it has maybe done some film festivals and stuff. If you don't do publicity for it, then nobody's going to see it. That's part of why when I was finished with Definition Please, I was like, oh, I'm going to push hard for publicity. That's going to be like my number one job. I'm going to do every podcast. I'm going to do every interview that I'm asked to do. And I'm going to especially focus on our community and I truly believe that there are so many great films that never get seen, like films that my friends have made that just never reach an audience because at some point they're like, oh, I don't know how to do social media. And it's like, yo, you got to learn how to do social media. You don't have to have 50,000, 100,000 followers, but... Like I run the definition, please social media accounts. So I run the Instagram, the Facebook and the Twitter. It's not anything like, you know, so unique. Like I'm not like the Wendy's Twitter account, <laughs> which is so, you know, and stuff. but I have gotten the film out there, you know, and people are following the accounts. And so that's something that as an artist, as a filmmaker, you just kind of have to figure that stuff out and make sure that you're, putting that time in as much as the time in that you're putting in to write your film or shooting the film or in post-production. Get the film out there to, you know, the people that you know, and then they can refer it to people that they know. So it, it really is all about communicating relationships and marketing and publicity. This goes to another argument that Liz and I had, or discussion, I should say, <laughs> weeks ago was about, because I have a feature film that is in the film festival circuit right now. And the discussion was about whether or not, is it best to use all your connections now when it's like playing festivals and try to get on as many podcasts, get as many reviews, get all these things now? Or is it better to save that ammunition for when, you know, the movie's, you know, being distributed and like out in the world and people are paying for it? One thing that we thought was, oh yeah, maybe it's better to wait and not use too much at the film festival run because people are just paying the film festivals to see the movie. They're not actually going into your whatever your pockets basically as you know the, with the movie being out in the world so my question to you is 
Do you feel that like all the publicity and all the reviews and all that stuff you did actually like netted a better distribution deal than you would have gotten if you would have had less reviews? Yes. Yes. The the publicity and the marketing definitely led to our distribution deal. So I see where you're saying in terms of like holding off and, you know, get that Rolling Stone article out on the day that the movie's <laughs> released. But I think one of our very first reviews was a very positive review in The Hollywood Reporter. And that just was like, first of all, it blew my mind. I was like, what? (laughs) It was when we premiered at Bentonville Film Festival in 2020. And I was really shocked. And then just more stuff started to balloon from there. And since it was COVID, we were like, let's do all the publicity that we want to do. And let's just try to get the best distribution deal. And let's see what happens. So I do believe that there is a strategy to that. But when the movie's released, I mean, we're just going to post the Hollywood Reporter review again. You know, we'll just keep reposting like kind of the big ones that we had from before. And it'll still be fine. Right. That's a good point. But you secured that review, right? Or was that Bentonville? I secured it. Yes. Amazing. But okay, so there's something I'm trying to get at it. And I don't know if I can verbalize it. But you also have an amazing profile as a performer prior to going out and doing this first feature as a writer director. And I think that's given you, I'll presume or I'll hypothesize, giving you a little bit more leverage in the world of garnering publicity for this feature. A lot of writer directors don't have the profile you do. I don't know, I guess, is there any advice you can give to a filmmaker who is shy about social media? I I often get that question all the time and I don't know what to tell them. I'll be like, well, uh, talk about it in a very human way. Talk about you don't have to be a promotional robot, right? You don't have to be Nike. You can talk about the emotions of making your film rather than the whitewashed version of it. I guess being a performer, has that helped? And do you have any advice for those who don't have that following already? I think it maybe helped a little bit, but yes, I I already had a social media presence and I would give the advice that, you know, I cold emailed so many reviewers and journalists and the worst thing that could happen is they don't answer you. So, so, so why not? And especially, you know what I targeted in the beginning, I was like, you know, I feel like this demo, this Indian American demo is really going to connect to this film. So I first started with, you know, Indian American publications and reporters and journalists. And that's where I started. And then I kind of branched out into Asian Americans. And then I was like, oh, I'll, I'll reach out to the people who covered Awkward Black Girl back in the day. So then I reached out to those people. So I started with who I felt would connect and respond to me first. And then I, it grew, the numbers grew from there. Since you seem to have a really good success with cold emailing, can I ask like what your cold email strategy is? Like, do you send an email that has like all the information about the film and a bunch of talking points? Or do you just send like, like, what is it that you send? I generally say, I generally like start with a compliment. Oh, I just read this article. Like it really, I really connected to it. It was about Shang-Chi, like so cool. Love that movie. Just wondering if you'd be into like checking out this indie film. And then I'll put maybe like one article. So maybe I'll put like, hey, it's been reviewed by a Hollywood reporter, or whoever. Here's the website. You can check it out. Very short, probably like four sentences long. And then you either get an answer or you don't. 
Wow. Don't put a bunch of links in there because nobody's trying to look at like five or six <laughs> links of anything. So I would just say one link. One piece of advice I've, I've gotten in the past from other people that has actually worked for me is to kind of create like the whole, like the whole package so that when the, the journalist gets the email from you, they basically just have to push play and then they can, you know, write their own content around it. They have all the information. They don't have to follow up with any other questions. It's just kind of prepackaged and ready to go. Oh, yeah. So, I created an EPK that lives in a Dropbox. Okay. So I do okay. send that link. Yes. And that has all okay. the pictures. It has all the information. It has a PDF, like a 20-page PDF if they want to look at it. It has all the reviews. It has all the accolades, the awards. And, and then I pop out some significant quotes. And you send that link like with the first email or kind of only after when they say they're... I've done that with the first email. Okay. Nice. Awesome. I'm basically, you can tell that I'm asking you specific questions. So I will actually go and do this with my own movie after we get off the call. So thank you for the, for the detail. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about casting with regard to your projects. Do you write specific roles for yourself? How do you populate? Like, how do you choose what role that you want to play? Is it just through sheer desire? Is there another strategy involved? And what's your casting philosophy uh, overall? I mean, I'm an actor first, so I write all the re lead roles for myself and then I cast around me. <laughs> and basically, in terms of casting, we did not have a casting director for Definition Please. I texted my friends to be in it. I texted friends of friends. If, if there was an actress or an actor that I was interested in, I'd be like, oh, who knows that person? And generally someone, our community is so small, our kind of Asian American acting community. And so I could always get to someone that I wanted to get to. I really felt like we lucked out in terms of all the actors and they just killed it. Like once they got to set, I didn't audition any of them because I know as an actor, I don't love going through the audition process. And that doesn't even necessarily... If you can do well in a one minute audition, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to do great on a feature film. So I just picked actors that I knew could handle it. And I knew they could really bring something to the role. And they did. So now that you've had this like success as a filmmaker and like, you know, your movies getting distribution, like you had such a great success with your short film. Like, do you feel that your future is more on the creator side, like like making your own projects and starring and acting in both? Or do you feel like, no, no, I'm still like happy to be like just an actor and work on, you know, whatever awesome project comes my way? Oh, I'm definitely just happy to be just an actor. That's fun for me. That is like, <laughs> that's good, good times. I'm into that, but I'm also definitely creating. I'm pitching TV shows. I'm raising money for my next feature. And... Those are all things that I will be starring in. I guess for the next project, is there some takeaway you have from Definition Please or Cowboy and Indian that specifically you're taking with you on the next one? Make sure I have distribution before I even start shooting the film. Whoa. <laughs> How are you going to do that? Tell us. <laughs> Since I have a lot of TV executive connections, so even if it's like a straight to a streamer or a straight to television network or a cable channel, that means a lot. So just getting that down before even shooting. And I would shoot a bigger budget as well. Is the motivation around that? Because if you do secure the deal beforehand that you'll be able to raise a bigger budget, is that sort of the motivation or like why 
do you feel like that's important? Because that was the hardest part about definition, please. And I never <laughs> want to go through that finding distribution process ever again in my life. Should we move on to final five, Auric? What do you think? Or do you want to... One well, I, I kind of want to dig on... I want to dig on that a little bit because I, I want to know like what was so challenging about distribution because obviously your movie has everything going for it, right? Like you had like great reviews, you have great publicity, you know, you have a strong film, you know, you had lots of great film festivals. So I'm curious like where the struggle was in getting the distribution deal. I mean, I don't know. We had a lot of passes. We had a lot of rejections. So I'm not sure what exactly these folks are looking for, but it wasn't my film. So I honestly like don't know what to say that to say to that because it, it did feel like I'm just really happy that I am an actor that has gone through so much rejection <laughs> and so many paths. Like I get rejected like 10 times a week rejection really slides off of me. And then I'm like, on to the next thing. So this was very interesting in a way that it felt like a lot of places were talking about diversity, but not really putting their money where their mouth was. But you were pitching not through a sales agent, not through a producer's rep. Yeah, it was just through our connections and our producers' connections. We did not have a sales agent, yes. So that would you think that impacted anything in any way? Or do you think regardless, they would have responded? I think regardless, it would have been the same response. And going back to festivals, because again, I there is a direct relationship between higher prestige festivals and different distributors that are willing to acquire that title. And Bentonville is a really, really solid festival. Would you say that's the best festival you got into? And did that amplify your chances for distribution or do you think that curbed them in some way? Oh, I mean, I have so many favorite film festivals. I wouldn't like necessarily say, oh, Bentonville is the best film festival that we played at because oh, I, I and not even like a sentimental question, but in terms of its influence on the market is really what I want to know. Yeah, I'm not sure if Bentonville necessarily helped or hindered. I, I do believe that COVID was a huge hindrance to all of it. So hopefully the market for other indie films from this point forward is a little more open. I think they, the distributors were being very picky in terms of, oh, well, we can only like what can open in theaters right now? Not a lot. So they were definitely looking for big names. So I would say moving forward, like at least have one star name in your film. I don't know. Is that a piece of advice? Yeah, we, we talk about that all the time, too. We talk about like certain names that traffic well internationally and the like pressure to cast those actors. And then the names that kind of green light financiers in the U.S. are like astronomical, unreachable names. They're like the Brad Pitt, Kate Blanchett names that... Yeah, it's like the Tom Cruise. And then you're like, well, I mean, if Tom Cruise can play an Indian American woman, okay, <laughs> great. I'll cast him. <laughs> yeah, we all would. <laughs> uh, that is amazing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we could keep on going all day with questions, but let's, yeah, let's get to the final five. So... I think I know the answer to this question already, but I'm going to answer anyways. What was the first film you ever made and how do you feel about it now? Definition, please. And I feel really good about it. What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? Invest in yourself. Do you have a goal as a filmmaker? Just keep making content that inspires the next generation. If you could go back in time, what's the piece of advice you'd give yourself? Listen to your voice. 
And final question, is making movies hard? Yes. <laughs> I thought you were going to say no. I was like, oh, I'm, I'm ready for the no. That was oh, the fastest final five we've ever had. Congratulations. <laughs> Usually it, it goes on for Right, quick, easy. They go on forever. They, they're like 20 minute segments usually. <laughs> oh, really? I don't know. I've done this before with other people where it's like, yeah. oh, it's like a quick 10 questions. Oh, and- no, that's okay. However you want to experience the final five is good for us. That was fine. Just I was praising you really for your economic approach. So how can people support you best and just call out, sell your wares? Yeah, definitely. Let's support Definition Please. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter at Definition Please. I believe on Twitter, it's at D-E-F-N, please. And then I also have my own Instagram, Facebook, Twitter at Sujata Day, S-U-J-A-T-A-D-A-Y. And we'll be announcing our distribution very soon. And then you guys can all support and watch. Perfect. Thank you for being on the show. Awesome. Thanks Thank so you much. for having me. On to the news. This week, we have an article from The Hollywood Reporter about AMC interim CEO talking about their approach on acquisitions and how it differs from HBO Max, Disney Plus, the big SFOD bubbles, everything out there in between. Ulrich, what was your takeaway? Well, I read this and I just got super excited because AMC, they own IFC, IFC Midnight and Shutter, and a bunch of other networks as well. The Sundance Channel, too? Is that one of theirs? Yeah, it's not Sundance, but yes, the Sundance Enterprises that doesn't have to do with Sundance Film Festival. Right, right, right. It's very interesting, you know, to hear what they're talking about, this whole niche model of trying to find audiences that want certain types of content and then therefore buying that kind of niche content to go to that audience. And I feel like this is exactly what like independent filmmakers need our companies to be doing this and searching for the smaller projects that aren't the big Marvel movies, that aren't the big blockbusters, that don't necessarily have Kate Winslet starring in it or whatever else. Marianne you know, Cotillard. Like it's got, yeah. yeah, exactly. That it's, it's going to be more indie uh, genre uh, based project or not even just genre necessarily because IFC obviously does a lot of drama stuff too. So I don't know. I got really excited to hear more about their approach and that they want to keep on doing this and they want to go in this direction even harder because it just means that, you know, Sh- Shutter and IFC Midnight are like two of the biggest buyers of, uh, you know, small independent genre films right now. It's like basically who everybody who makes a genre film is like hoping to get bought by one of those places amongst other people too, of course. But those are two of the hot ones. So I feel like, like if they're going to make more networks and more different sites that are more niche than even what they have, they're going to continue on this model. It'll just mean more places to buy our content. And then it just also means that they want to keep on going down this road. So this this will continue. So I don't know. I got really excited about it. But what about you, Liz? Like, do you feel the same way? I don't really have a takeaway from this article. I know Eric, our producer, pitched it. And I was like, I have nothing to say about this, Eric, but I'll do it, which is kind of how I feel about this conversation. You know, genre has a leg up in the marketplace. Horror is one of those genres that escapes a lot of the volatility of the market. So, of course, it would make sense to invest your time and acquisitions energy into curating and, and distributing horror content. I would say where, where my only takeaway comes in is there are tons of other niches that distributors, studios, platforms can get involved in. When I first came to Sundance in 2016, I did like a 30-page report on SVOD platforms. And there were so many SVOD platforms in 2016. There was like 
the K-drama SVOD platform, they animate, like some of these still exist, but they would be very specific in the niches so that they could grow their audience. But ultimately, without the tech foundation of like a Netflix or an Amazon or the audience built in from Whole Foods and overnight delivery and prime, you know, it's like it's very hard to set up and succeed with a niche SVOD platform or any sort of niche platform in SVOD or not. So I would say that this just seems like an article about someone saying like, we're going to stick in horror because horror is reliable. And yes, we're not Marvel, but we're still successful. It's like, yeah, water is wet. Water is wet. Well, I don't think they're just, but it's not just horror though. It's like, what I'm gleaming from this is that they're going to be trying to find more niche markets to focus on. So maybe there'll be like a sci-fi service they'll start, or maybe they'll be going into, I don't know, sure. like trans cinema. That could be a thing that I think people would be interested in, in watching more of, you know? So it's like, I think there's a lot of different places they could go with this. And I'd be curious to see like what ends up happening. Like, is, it, is there just going to be more and more channels popping up or... You know, is this going to all deflate? Like, who knows? You know? Yeah. My guess is that it's going to be if they, I, I don't know. I would, I, you look at AMC and you're like, okay, yes, they do other things other than horror, but what are, th- what is their most popular franchise? Walking Dead, right? It's like the <laughs> things that, you know, look at Shudder. Yes, of course, Shudder's doing really well because it has a monopoly on horror distribution right now in terms of a platform. So I, I, yes, they're diversifying is fantastic, but I think that their bread and butter is, is that genre fair. And that's, it's just whatever. I hate these articles, whatever. I'm just going to whine. <laughs> You're like the same thing as last week. Like this article's <laughs> stupid. Like it's saying something we already know. It doesn't add anything new to the conversation, blah, blah, blah. I guess people thought that this guy was going to get, you know, not be around very long and maybe he won't be. Right. I don't know. We'll, we'll see what happens. <laughs> From the, the writer's perspective, it seemed like they were sh- like surprised that they were going to stick with this. And like, oh, they're not going to do what, you know, Disney Plus and <laughs> no, that's right. HBO Max is doing. It's like, come on. Well, how could they? Like, is everyone going to just be doing the same exact thing and like go, yeah, go after the same? It's like, no, you can't. You have to be innovative. You have to think differently. I don't know. Anyways. I think I just like tur- my brain turns off when they talk about anything like this. When I see the f- the acronym CEO, I like start sleeping. Like I just fall. I can't pay attention anymore. <laughs> and I think that's what happens to me when we do this segment. <laughs> that's why I always that's try so to get funny. other articles than these. We'll see if I win out next week, everyone. Let's, let's yeah, find let's out. see if Liz likes next week's article. <laughs> Although I would argue that last week's article spurned a great conversation. So even though you hated it, it was great. But so. this one, I have nowhere to go. I mean, like we're both genre <laughs> filmmakers because we know it's like, the more reliable pathway for storytellers right now. But that's not also the and reason why. And because you love I mean, it. And because you love it. Yeah. It's because that's all I can do. I mean, I've, I mean I've, I've tried making drama movies and movies that aren't sci-fi or horror, but it's just like, they don't, I'm not as excited by them. They just don't excite me, Liz. It's not what I'm, comes out of my brain, you know? <laughs> we do have a listener question this week. This is from Ed Jones Edwards. Amazing name again. Firstly, thanks so much for the birthday wishes on the show, Liz and Ulrich. Someone likes the birthday wishes. Amazing. It was a nice surprise. I've got a question. It's for Liz, actually. So, Liz, my question is, how low do you go? Meaning, do you have a flat fee for a few hours of consulting for a next-to-no-budget film? Do you charge by the hour? If so, how much? 
How does distribution consultancy work exactly for the lower end of the budget range? So I have different models of consulting and they're based off of my emotional investment in the film. My lowest level is 200 an hour and it's prorated and it's for me not watching the film. And it's you could talk to me for five minutes. You could talk to me for 15 hours. It is prorated to the exact minute where I help you. And the reason I do that, which 200 actually is very, very small for distribution consulting, you would be shocked. The person I was comparing to, it's about half their rate. Anyway, the reason I do that is because the minute I see a film and I'm emotionally invested, I go and I do way more for that film, like uh, things that aren't transactional, things that you can't really pay for. Like I will lobby for the film at film festivals and I will take phone calls that I you know, wasn't planning on taking it. I just get emotionally involved in the outcome. And then I do a consulting package where I watch a movie and I talk to someone for an hour and I can share that rate with Ed privately because it's probably going to change in the coming weeks. And then I do sales. And the only thing I want to mention is that I'm one of the very few, you could call it a producer's rep, but I just say that I do sales. I'm one of the very few producer's reps where I don't take any revenue from a filmmaker. I refuse to take any sort of percentage of a filmmaker's revenue, regardless of whether I secure them a deal or not, because I think that revenue is really precious and should remain ours. After all the platforms take their take and the distributors take their take, I don't want to make it even worse. Yeah. I always see when people had like a rapper or somebody, you know, supporting the film and then they get distribution. I always like, okay, so you paid 10% and then you're paying 20 percent or maybe 30 percent on top of that so then you're actually your percentage you're taking home is like whatever it harms the waterfall i do an upfront fee that's a lot less than other reps charge as well because again i'm trying not to take advantage of filmmakers and that's my whole model because you guys are my peers so it's really important to me to not look like a a wolf or a barnacle but really just look like an advocate and to be an advocate yeah and then I, I want you to answer just this one last little part of his question. I won't read the whole thing, but he's okay. just had a follow-up question. Like, at what point would you expect to do such a consultancy in the filmmaking process? Do you do it right in the beginning, at the end? When does it happen? I've had people in development reach out to talk to me because they wanted to see how I could help inform the writing of their screenplay. But most of my clients come to me after they finish the film. They may not be done with sound lock, but they're done with picture lock. They're starting festival submissions. And they're trying to figure out the best way to position their film for sales agents, for distributors, and then to assess the distribution potential for their movie. When do you think the most helpful for you to come in on a project is? Do you think it's like after it's shot or do you think it would be better if you came in earlier? I would love to come in before picture lock when they're still accepting notes because I'm a lot harsher than I think other people are going to be to them because I'm not their friends and family. And before they start submitting the film way too early to film festivals, which everyone always does. So I'd want to come in. I do too. I'd want to come in to stop them from doing that and to have them cut 10 minutes from the top of their film. Because it's always, you always want to shorten the beginning of your film. It always drags. Yeah. I think that's great advice. And I mean, you know, having just submitted my film way too early to film festivals on my first feature film after... Doing it on shorts and like kind of thinking, oh, I won't do that with my feature, but then doing it with your feature anyways, it's just like, ah, so now I'm never doing that again. I'll, I'll like pledge right now. I'm never submitting a work in progress film to anywhere because wow. it's stupid. Don't do it. Unless like you personally know the head of the festival and they're asking you to submit the movie and they're like, no, please, I want to see it 
and you trust that they can see it for what it is without the finisher's effects. But you have to, it's got to be the top decision maker. If it's not the top decision maker, wait till the movie's done. And I promise you, it's not going to hurt you to wait a year because yes. it really won't. It's not going to make a big difference. It will help Despite your what film. your brain's telling you. <laughs> Absolutely. Last thing I wanted to ask you about was, do you charge people when you watch? Like, you, are you on the clock when you watch the movie? Or is that yeah, kind of like, absolutely. oh, absolutely. Wow, I want your job. A lot of sales agents don't do that, but they charge more. They charge way more mm. than I do. They charge about double what I do. Mm. What I do, and for the record, I'll take a half hour call with anyone for free. So if anyone wants a chat, they can contact me. And I do that all the time for free. So I always try to be of value to someone who can't afford me. But I'm not going to decide to work with someone until I have a chat with them and know that I want to be an advocate for them. It's not always the film. Does that make sense? It's like, I'm not mm, going to. Of course. Yeah. I'm not going to watch the film and be like, oh, I'm not going to work with you because this film isn't good enough. No, I take a half hour call. And if I like the person and I believe in them and I want them to succeed, then I then I decide to work with them and then I watch the movie. And we've said this before, but just so everyone knows, this is like 90% of how things happen in the filmmaking business. It's not the movie, it's the person. Yeah. Yeah. And it's <laughs> important to me also, it's like... for people to know. But I also, it's like, I own my own business. So it's like, do I want to spend even an hour with someone that I don't want to hang with, right? It's got to be right. someone that you connect with, that you believe in, that you feel like is worth your time. Yeah, Absolutely. So, if you want to be like Ed Jones Edwards, you can send us a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. Or if you really like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes or any of the other places that reviews exist, because there are a few. Podchaser, I think, is one. And finally, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MMIH Podcast. And we still have our YouTube going strong at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. Thanks so much to Sujata for coming on the show and for Eric Toms for being our great producer every week, as he always is. And of course, to our new editor, Jeff Rymoot, for doing the editing. And I think this will be the last time I say new editor because he's not really that new anymore. He's done like six shows. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And we'll talk to you guys next week. I'm Liz Manischel. I'm the writer, director, producer named Liz Manischel. That's ridiculous. Okay. <laughs>